Now we come to God's Word, brothers and sisters, so let's open up, if you will, with me to the book of Micah, chapter 3 today. The Old Testament book of Micah. Micah is at the end, toward the end at least, of your Old Testaments. If you're unfamiliar with the way a Bible is laid out, uh, you can grab that blue Bible on the pew in front of you and turn to page 925. That's where we'll be. Micah chapter 3, starting in verse 1 here in just a moment. Now on June 1st of 2020, not too long ago, many of you will remember this, in the midst of riots in Washington, D.C. over the killing of George Floyd, President Trump had rioters dispersed from a certain section surrounding the White House, and he calmly walked over to St. John's Episcopal Church across the street, bringing with him press photographers and a Bible so that he could pose with that Bible in front of that church. Because, he said, he wanted to give the American people a visual. The very next day, in reaction against the president's blatant use of the Bible as a prop for his own agenda, which is what it was, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi did the exact same thing. She brought a Bible to a Capitol Hill event, And proceeded to hold it up and read from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, saying the president had a responsibility to heal. They were using God's word for their own purposes. We can chronicle a hundred ways politicians have used God and the Bible for their own agenda and their own political gain. Whether it be faithfully attending church all of a sudden after years of absence because, you know, it's campaign season and they need to be seen there. They need to be seen as a Christian. Whether it's quoting a Bible verse completely out of context to justify whatever they're trying to push at the time, or whether it's bringing in well-known spiritual leaders as quote-unquote advisors so that they can win over religious voters. It is all a sick game of using God and the Bible. But today, we're going to see from Micah chapter 3 that we too can fall to the sin of using God and the Bible for our own agenda. Let's read through our text. We're going to read the whole chapter of Micah 3. It's only 12 verses long, so stay with me. Micah 3, starting in verse 1. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the houses of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips, for there is no answer from God." 
But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Now, I want you to see from our text first something that, on the surface, probably doesn't apply to many of us today. Because this chapter right here, before I I try to apply it to all of us, I want you to listen in on this warning as I give it to myself and to those of us in vocational ministry. This chapter is a warning to those in vocational ministry. I want you to see how the words of God through Micah here in this chapter are directed particularly to the Israelite leaders and the prophets. To the Israelite leaders and the prophets. Micah is saying, and the Lord is saying through Micah, there is always a danger and temptation for people to turn the work of the Lord into something that they use for selfish gain. Notice how in verses 2 and 3, he uses some of the strongest language we've ever heard about this. He says, you tear the skin from off my people and the flesh from off their bones. You eat their flesh. You flay the skin from off them and break their bones in pieces. Chop them up like meat in a pot. Now, when you read that, that sounds horrific. Now, you need to know he's, he's speaking metaphorically here. This is symbolic language of what the leaders are doing to their people, right? They're taking away their very lives from them in the way that they're oppressing them, right? They might as well be doing this because their oppression to their people is taking away their very life, their very needs. They're taking them away. Now, there will come a time later in Scripture, in the the progress of the story of the Old Testament and the nation of Israel, there will come a time later where Jerusalem is destroyed and where people are starving because of the nation of Babylon having come in and sacked Jerusalem and then people start eating one another. It's in the book of Lamentations. You can read that gruesome description of what was happening when Jerusalem was destroyed. But here, Micah is using this poetic, figurative language to talk about the way that the the Israelite leaders and the prophets are fleecing their people. They're destroying them. They're taking away their needs. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, it's talking about prophets who cry peace when they have something to eat. But they declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Now, if you remember the Old Testament, the priests who served in the temple, they were fed their food by the sacrifices of the people, right? And in much the same way, when people went to a prophet to discern the will of the Lord in some matter, they would give them payment, often in the form of food. And so we see prophets right here who prophesy one thing when they get something from the people, They prophesy another thing when they don't get what they want from the people. These are prophets who essentially say, you you pay me, you take care of me, I'll give you a good prophecy. And if you don't take care of me, I'm going to give you an unfavorable prophecy. It's not about the word of the Lord going to the people no matter what. 
It's about those prophets taking care of themselves and giving people what they want to give to them based upon what the people pay. You can see this probably most clearly in verse 11. Verse 11 where it says, Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests, they teach for a price. And its prophets practice divination for money. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, another prophetic book, we see God speaking to this very thing, speaking to the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel. In Ezekiel 34, 2, it says, Son of man, that's God's term for Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? And yet these shepherds have been feeding themselves. This chapter, Micah 3, is a strong warning to those in vocational ministry, to those in positions like mine, to those who might serve as elders or deacons. We are not to use our ministry to line our own pockets. We are not to use our ministry or the work of the Lord to make our own lives nice and comfortable. Now, 1 Corinthians 9, which we went over when we went through 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings, 1 Corinthians 9 teaches the biblical doctrine that those who give their lives to preaching the gospel should make their living by the gospel. Right? So it is good and right and proper for a church to take care of the needs of its minister so that the minister can focus on pastoring and preaching. But God is especially against those who use that position for selfish gain. He is especially against such people. Against them in a way that he is not against a, let's say, normal enemy of his. Lately, we've seen this in the news. We've seen this on television. There are a few well-known tele-evangelists that you can turn on the television and see their preaching, or what they would call preaching, their ministries. In the last few years, two men, Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis, who are false teachers in every way, wolves in sheep's clothing, have come out and just straight up asked their viewers to finance their own purchases of private jets. And they said when they asked... They would say that the Lord told them to do it. It frightens me to know what the Lord will do to such men if they do not repent. The blood of Christ can cover any and all sin, but I am literally frightened at what God would do to that. The Lord has a special anger for that kind of thing, using Him to line your own pockets, using him and his word and his work to line your own pockets, to fleece people, to swindle people out of their money. And this is not a new development. We can see it all the way back 3,000 years ago in the book of Micah. One of the most famous examples of church history came in the 16th century. If you remember, what motivated Martin Luther to write the 95 Theses and essentially kickstart the Protestant Reformation was a man named Johann Tetzel It was going around the streets hacking what they called indulgences. Indulgences were these pieces of paper that you could buy. Right? The money 
The money goes to the church, and the church spends the money on bigger and better buildings and more ornate ornate structures and and facilities. But the money, Johann Tetzel was going around saying, if you buy one of these indulgences, you can pay to free one of your dead loved ones out of purgatory. He was teaching the people that that's the way God worked, and that's the way the spiritual world worked. And so people would pay money, and the more indulgences you buy, the more loved ones you free out of purgatory. It was sick. And Martin Luther saw right through it. And he said, I I can't keep quiet anymore. There is a special warning here, and we all need to listen in on this. Every single one of us, not just those of us in ministry, every single one of us needs to listen in on this because it is God's word to all of us. There's a special warning here in chapter 3 for those in vocational ministry or for those who have a position of ministry in the church that we dare not use that position or use that ministry or use that work of the Lord for our own selfish gain, for our own selfish purposes. But brothers and sisters, it is not just about those in ministry. It's about every single one of us. We can use God to get what we want. And all of us are prone to this. In fact, one of the things that we can look toward to see, am I doing this in my life? Am I thinking like this in my own life? One of the litmus tests for this is our prayer lives. Your prayer life is a litmus test for how you view the Lord. Your prayer life reveals your view of God. And so think about your own prayer life. What does your prayer life say about your view of God? I'm not talking about what would you tell me your view of God was if I asked you. No, let's take an objective look at our prayers. What do our prayers say about the way that we view God? If someone heard only our prayers and didn't know us, what would they say about our view of God? Look at verse 4 with me in our text. Chapter 3, verse 4, after this evil that these, these leaders and prophets are doing to the people, it says, Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they've made their deeds evil. God is saying, you ignore my commands as you go about living your life. You ignore me. But when something goes wrong, you expect me to answer. You expect me to just show up. Like a butler. It's like Alfred in Batman. You rang, sir? It's what we expect of God. Now, interestingly enough, this verse right here is one of the verses that shows us in Scripture there are times, believe it or not, when God refuses to answer prayers. He refuses to even listen to prayers. We've, we've got these sayings that we often say, and we're not always sure they're biblical. God will always listen to your prayers. God will never turn his ear off to a prayer. Well, there are actually nine times I've found in Scripture that it says God will not listen to a prayer. Nine times that God will refuse to listen to prayers. Now, if you want all nine of the references, send me an email or a text later. But I will tell you this. Eight of them are in the Old Testament, and only one is in the New Testament. And the one that's in the New Testament is different from all the others because it comes in 1 Peter 3, 7, where God says, if husbands are harsh with their wives, their prayers will be hindered. Now, that's, that's telling because, number one, it tells us how seriously God expects husbands to live in an understanding way with their wives. But number two, that's the only one in the New Testament, and it's different from all the others. What that tells me is, in the New Covenant, as Christians... 
If you're a sincere Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus, if the Holy Spirit is inside of you and you are a child of God, I think I can confidently say God will always listen to your prayers. God will never turn a deaf ear to your prayers. You're his child, right? It's by the blood of Christ that we come. But what this shows us is, and all of the eight in the Old Testament that I've found, there might be more, I've found eight. There might be more. But all of the ones in the Old Testament together, as you look at all of them, show us that if you pretend to be godly, if you're only pretending to be godly on the outside, and then you expect God to just show up at your beck and call, He will not do it. But if we're sincerely following Jesus from the heart, God will never turn a deaf ear to those prayers, no matter how we have failed. And so we see from Scripture, there are times where God will refuse to listen to a prayer. But more to the point here, why is he saying this? He's pointing out how he's not our spiritual butler. That's not who he is. That's not how we relate to him. And yet it is how so many do relate to him. We ignore God day in and day out. But when something bad happens, all of a sudden we turn to him and say, God, please get me out of this jam. We want to keep him in our back pocket, so to speak. You know, for emergencies. But that's where we want him to stay. Keep God right here in the back pocket as long as he stays there. How would you feel... If a friend only came to you when they wanted something from you. Some of us know how that feels, right? It's not friendship at all. It's not a relationship. They're using me, right? How many of us regret times in our past where we have treated our own parents like that, right? When we were younger, perhaps, going through certain periods of immaturity, Treated our own parents like that, only coming to them when we wanted something. The question is, do we only want God for what he can give us? Do we only want God for what he can give us? Many of us might say no to that on the surface, but what happens when we look, when we take an objective look at our lives and the functional way that we operate when it comes to God, when it comes to prayer? In November 2010, The Buffalo Bills were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers, NFL. Game went to overtime, 2010 now. And on that team was a former UK wide receiver named Stevie Johnson. You might remember Stevie Johnson from the years round about when I was in school when we all of a sudden got really good at football. We had Andre Woodson and we beat like LSU number one in the country that year. Well, he was on that team. Well, he was really good, this Stevie Johnson wide receiver guy. Went on to play in the NFL and for the Buffalo Bills. And during overtime of that game, Stevie Johnson gets wide open in the end zone. No one's anywhere near him. And the quarterback passes it to him, and it hits him right in the hands, and he drops it. Game-winning touchdown would have been. He dropped it. They lost the game. Afterwards, Stevie Johnson takes to Twitter, and he says, I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this. Ever. Thanks, though. All caps. It's directed at God. Blaming God for his dropped pass. And what it revealed was something that not many people picked up on. It revealed his relationship 
or what he called his relationship with God. In other words, he's only in it if God does what he wants him to do. I'm only in this, God, if you do what I think you should do. But if you don't, I'm out. I'm done. Perhaps we've been tempted to think like this before in our own lives. I've seen this before. Someone prays and asks God to heal their loved one who is dying. And God doesn't do it. And so their reaction is, fine then, I'm done. I'm done with God. He's not going to heal my loved one when I pray and ask him with faith. I'm done. Friends, we don't dictate to God. God will not be ordered. He will not be manipulated. He will not be used. We take orders from him. We sit under his direction. We submit to him, not the other way around. And if our prayer lives only consist of asking God for things, if our prayer life is nothing more than asking him for stuff, we might say we love the Lord, but our functional relationship is like master and butler. You can say you love the Lord with your mouth, but is your functional relationship with him like a a master of a house and a butler expecting him to wait on you whenever you're ready, but expecting him to leave you alone when, when you don't need him? And brothers and sisters, that's really no relationship at all. This is a warning for all of us, this text. It's not just for ministers. It is. I mean, it, it powerfully is a warning for ministers, but it's a warning for every single one of us. It's not only for politicians. It's not only for other people. We've all got this tendency in our own hearts. And it can manifest itself in more ways than just our prayer lives. The tendency to use God to get what we want. So we we need to ask ourselves some diagnostic type questions. Questions like, is our Christianity a means of gaining respect in the community or in the business world? Do I go to church? Do I say I'm a Christian? Do I say we're members of this church so that we can get respect in the community or in the business world? Or how about this one? Do we attend church as a means of suppressing the guilt we have for our sins of the past week? The reason I'm coming to church on Sunday is because I don't want to feel so guilty about everything I did this past week. And if I sit in church for an hour, I feel a little bit better. Go on with my life. I can just suppress that guilt a little bit more. Use God, use worship to get something else that I want. I don't want God, I want something else. So I'm going to use God to get that. Let's ask this. Have we been performing our religious duties, such as worship attendance or prayer or giving an offering or reading the Bible, so that God will give us a comfortable life? Have we been thinking in in the back of our minds, if I do all of these things, if I do them faithfully, faithfully, then God will make sure that my life is nice. God will make sure that my life is free from suffering. So I'm going to use God to get what I really want. Or perhaps the most common one. Are we doing all of these things to buy our way into heaven? Are we hoping that we can be good enough to earn eternal life? 
It's probably the most common way that people use the Lord and use the means that He has given us to know Him to get our own agenda, to buy our way into heaven, to buy our way into His favor. And brothers and sisters, it's impossible, but people do it all the time. You can't buy off God. You can't make God love you or make God reward you by how good you are. Now I want to end by doing this. I want to give you the opposite of using God. I'm going to give you four of them. And I know that doesn't make sense logically, but just indulge me here. Like, you know, you can't have four opposites of one thing. But we're going to give four, okay? There's four ways that you can do the opposite of using God. What is the opposite of using God? Number one, it's this. The opposite of using God is glorifying Him. Instead of using Him, we glorify Him. Look at Jesus' life, right? Jesus' life. He wasn't interested in using God for any other purpose. He glorified Him, right? Jesus' model prayer, the, the Lord's prayer, when He was teaching His disciples to pray, it started out with a few statements that get Jesus nothing. He doesn't get any benefit from it other than enjoying the glory of God because He takes joy in it. The, the prayer starts off, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What that means is he's praying for God's name to be hallowed in the world. God, may your name be glorified in the world. You pray something like that, you don't get anything from that. That's not making your life more enjoyable. That's not giving you attention from other people. It's not answering your desires unless... Unless your desire is the glory of God spread throughout the world. Do you see how completely selfless that desire is? That Jesus was desiring that God's glory, his name would be hallowed throughout all the world. We get nothing from this. But if we can glory in that, that's where we're getting right down to what the essence of Christianity is. The essence of following the Lord. Forget about yourself. It's all about him and his glory. So God, Jesus prays, hallowed be your name. And then he prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about him. It's about God and his glory. The opposite of using God is glorifying him. Glorifying him. Here's another one. The opposite of using God is submitting to him. Submitting to him. The opposite of using God is submitting to Him. We can use this case in point with the Bible, right? You can either, either use this thing or you can submit to this thing. It's two different ways. When you use it, you stand over it and you come to it with your own agenda, right? And you want it to do something for you that you have decided that you need for yourself. When you submit to it, you come to it with open hands, an open heart, an open mind, and you say, whatever God has for me. Right? I'm going to allow God in and whatever he has for me. Because as you read through the Bible, there will be all kinds of things that come up that you needed that you didn't know you needed. Because we don't even have the ability to diagnose our own problems the way that God does. Right? He knows our hearts better than even we do. And so you submit to him. Instead of using him for your own agenda, you submit to him whatever his agenda is, whatever he wants. Look at verse 2 in our text. Verse 2, where it says, you who hate the good and love the evil. Boy, that's a verse for our times, is it not? You who hate the good and love the evil. So the question that we've all got to ask ourselves there is, do my affections line up with God's? 
Do I hate what he hates and love what he loves? Or do I love some things that he hates? Do I hate some things that he loves? You see, God must reprogram our loves and our desires and our feelings. Because there, we, we've just got to admit, there are some things that we naturally love or we naturally are drawn to and God hates them. Especially if we've become a Christian later in our lives, right? And we've spent years and years being conditioned by our culture. There are some things that we are naturally drawn to and that we naturally kind of love that God hates. And the flip side's also true. There are other things that we naturally don't like, that we naturally resist, and God loves them. And so over time, part of being a Christian is letting God, through the Holy Spirit, reprogram your desires to where they line up with His, to where you end up loving what He loves and hating what He hates, rejoicing in what He rejoices in and being disgusted at what He's disgusted at, right? Reaching people the way Jesus did, feeling about people the way Jesus did, feeling about the world the way that Jesus did. We're submitting to God instead of using Him here. Third, instead of using God, we seek Him. Instead of using God, we seek Him. Using Him is saying, I've got my own agenda. I want to use it to get what I want. Seeking God is coming to Him because what you want is Him, not anything else. When we're using God, we're using Him to get what we really want. It's not Him. But God wants us to seek Him. Seek Him for who He is. Not for what He can give us, but for who He is. We love Him. We want Him. If you remember Moses on Mount Sinai, the people are down at the bottom worshiping the golden calf. Moses intercedes. God says, I'm going to destroy him. But Moses intercedes with prayer and God relents. And then God tells Moses, now Moses, you take the people, you leave this place and you go off to the promised land, but I'm not coming with you because this is a stiff-necked people and I would destroy them on the way. And Moses says to God, essentially, if you're not coming with us, kill us all now because it's not worth it without you. The promised land is not worth it without you. We want you. We need you. I don't know if all the people would have said that, but Moses got it. We need God. We don't need everything that He can give us. There are a million blessings that we have that He can give us, that He does give us. But what we need is Him. Do we want that? Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Right? That doesn't mean try to go to church and then God will give you all of the material possessions that your heart really wants. No, that means if your heart is delighted in Him, He is the only one who can actually fill that hole in your heart. He is the only one who can actually satisfy you. So delight yourself in the Lord and He will satisfy the desires of your heart. Because your heart can only be satisfied in Him. Right? We need Him. When Jesus was on this earth. Right after the, the story of the woman at the well in John 4, he said to the disciples, he, he says, I've got food. And they had just went to get food. And they're like, who, who brought you food? Why, how do you have food? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's what gets me going. That's what, that's what satisfies me. That's what gives me sustenance and nour- nourishment, is just doing God's will. 
Right? I don't have my own agenda. I just want to do God's will. That's what gets Jesus going. Is that what gets us going? If not, would you pray to the Lord and ask him, do you want that? And first of all, do you want it? You're not going to pray if you don't want it. But if you want it and you're not there, ask him to help you get there. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to help you delight in him more than any of his gifts. And then finally, the opposite of using him is surrendering to him. Surrendering to him. Let him in. Let him do his work on your heart. You cannot earn his favor. You cannot earn his rewards. You must repent and surrender. You must surrender to his son Jesus. The only way that you can have God is if you surrender to his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We've got to give up our lives to gain them. We've got to let go of our lives to have them. If you want to keep your life, if you want to have life, then you've got to let it go. You've got to surrender. You've got to sacrifice it. You've got to give it up. You've got to let Jesus come in and clean house and be Lord of your life. And only then will you have the desires of your heart. It's Jesus. It's all Jesus. You have to come to God through Jesus. Do you want God? You can't have him without his son. He who loves the son has the father. He who does not have the son does not have the father either. First John. And so I'll leave you with that. Surrender to God by surrendering to Jesus. We're going to take some time right now to pray to the Lord, each and every one of us, to respond to God. It's the time we use every week because we hear the word of the Lord, we let God speak to us, and now we need to speak back to Him. What do you need to say to the Lord? It's probably different for you than it is for me, which is why we give this time in silence for each one of us individually to do it. Let's spend some time in prayer silently to the Lord, each one of us, and then we'll come back and have an invitation time for those to respond who need to do so publicly. Let's pray.